My prayer this morning, Father, is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had a group of teenagers in a 15-passenger van on your way to West Virginia for work camp, but it can be a little bit noisy. And I'll tell you, in the old days when I started as a youth pastor in 1984, we still had a cassette in the van. It had air conditioning and it had a cassette. And the rule was we would, we would sign up and everybody got to play one cassette because West Virginia is a 12, 13-hour ride with the appropriate stops because teenagers have bladders the size of a pea. One of the highlights of the trip was the Baltimore Tunnel. Getting ready to the tunnel. And all the kids are going like this. <gasps> Because you know it's coming, we're going to play the tunnel game. As you go in, you take a deep breath, and the goal is to get to the other end of the tunnel holding your breath. And what it means for the youth pastor is a minute of complete silence. Now, I'll be honest, Vicki and I still play the tunnel game because she's married to somebody who has a, a heart for youth. And I, I even play it, I'll admit it, when I'm driving by myself. If you get to a tunnel, you take a deep breath. <gasps> now, here's what happens. Sometimes the people are flying through the tunnel, and you get to the other end, and you go, oh, that was easy. And sometimes you get somebody who just keeps tapping the brake in front of you. And I don't know if you've been on that tunnel recently. Vicki and I have. It's not exactly a straight line. And there's parts in that tunnel that are completely dark. Well, let's do it this way. So you take your deep breath and you go in and you're very confident. I can do this. <gasps> and if you're flying through, good news. And then you get behind that person tapping their brakes. And you're like... <clears throat> now, when I was a lifeguard, they taught me, and I believe it's true, that if you let a little bit of air out as you're going along, you're not breathing in, that's cheating, but you let a little bit out through your nose, the air will last longer. So I do do that. And then there comes that point where you think, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And it's a stupid game. There's no prizes involved. And, and yet you want to make it. You set that goal for yourself. And then you turn that last little corner. And far away, you can see the end of the tunnel. And we don't usually drive through it at night. We're in the daytime. So it lights up. There's a light, literally at the end of the tunnel. And it says, you can do this. And I've looked over at Vicky, and Vicky's looked at me sometimes, and our eyes are bugging out, and we're turning a little bit red, but we're going to make it. That's the feeling that David is conveying in this psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? Now, I want to tell you to be very careful because there's this story, you can look it up on NPR. After its driver fainted Sunday, this Toyota collided with two other vehicles in the wall of a tunnel in Oregon. When driving, don't text, don't dial, and don't hold your breath until you turn blue in the face. A Washington teenager broke that rule last Sunday night while driving through a tunnel near Manning, Oregon. 19-year-old, and they put his name in here, poor kid, Daniel J. Cahoon fainted while holding his breath. 
His Toyota Camry crossed the center line and rammed into an oncoming Ford Explorer. Both vehicles hit interior tunnel walls, according to the Oregon State Police, before a pickup truck collided with the Camry. Four people were injured, one seriously. The last line says this. The Oregon people, or the Oregon State Police, tweeted in response to the accident, don't play games on our roads. <sighs> so, if you're going to play the tunnel game, because now, now that you know that it exists, and you have to take a breath, please take a breath. <laughs> and I'll, I'll be honest, Vicki and I have sometimes, before we got to the end, gone and taken a breath. But you still want to outlast the other person. Like, I'm going to take a breath. But Vicky's like, I'm not taking a breath until Doc takes a breath. And the other way around, right? But this is where David is. Now, I also want to point out, and uh, I used to run, and you know this, I used to run support groups for adult victims of child abuse. And one of the ladies always used to say, you know, it's darkest before the dawn. We've all heard that. You've seen T-shirts and memes. This other lady looked at her right in the eyes and said, no, it's always darkest just before it goes totally black. David was in that place. Think about where David is. David is being chased by the king. This is the king that threw a spear at him while he was playing the harp, not once, but twice. And David jumped out of the way. David is living in the wilderness with his mighty men. And they are um, supporting themselves by actually running a godly protection racket, protecting the shepherds and the towns, but he has no place to call home. He has no help from the people that love him because the king will punish them. And for all intents and purposes, he has no hope. I'm stuck here in the wilderness. And then he pens this psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Now, we say this a lot on Thursday, but I think it's true for every part of the Bible, not just 2 Peter, that what was going on for David is going on for us. Let me just throw a couple out for you. Ukraine, China, hackers, inflation, the price of gasoline. If we were to get more personal... All of us sometimes are afraid of death or abandonment or isolation, economic setback and loss, loss of your job or your money or your home, your relatives or your family. We are all in a very similar place to David. And, and I want you to hear this. In psychology, we say that anxiety is the fear of the what if. David had his what ifs. What if Saul caught him? What if he couldn't find enough food for his mighty men? Because armed men with swords and spears can turn on you really fast. Look how the Israelites, before they were Israelites, turned on David in the wilderness. Or David, Moses, in the wilderness. Why did you bring us out here to die? There's no water. We had leeks and garlic in Egypt. And I got to tell you, I often have a craving for things. Leeks and garlic has never been one of them. But you've read Exodus all Christian leaders, all godly leaders, all believers in God wind up in these situations of the what-ifs. 
I'll be honest, your pastor has his what ifs. And uh, your pastor's wife likes to tease him for his what ifs, and I am totally in support of that. I ran around yesterday around five o'clock and I set all the clocks ahead in the house. I do that every year because I don't want to trick myself into staying up an extra hour and then being sleepy for church on Sunday. Nobody wants a sleepy preacher. Now, if we were real Baptists, that would have gotten at least three amens. <laughs> Let me try that again. Nobody wants a sleepy preacher. Amen. There we go, right? We're getting in the car. We're driving here. We're a little bit ahead of schedule. And I look at the clock, and I didn't change the clock in my car. And Vicky could tell that I was upset. And she goes, you didn't change the clock. Like, she was having fun. Because that's a what if. It created an anxiety. There is no law that you have to change the clock. I've been in people's cars that don't change it because they say it'll be right again in October. <laughs> that would drive your pastor up a tree. Are we up, right? So if you want, you should run back and make sure that the clock never gets changed. Although somebody already did. Thank you. And let's be honest. You have your what ifs. Stress, we're taught, is a response to a real or a perceived threat. David had real threats. King Saul, the battles, the giants. And he had perceived threats. If, if we could have looked into David's mind, why did God pick me, a shepherd boy, to be a king? He probably couldn't even read and write. He had no training. He didn't have an MBA from Penn, right? He had no idea how to run a country, and yet God said, you're going to be king. David had his what-ifs. And let's be honest, you and I have our what-ifs. Uh, one of my favorite Peanuts comics is Charlie Brown is sitting in the school nurse's office. And as he waits in frame one, he says, so here I am about to see the school nurse. In frame two, Charlie wonders, well, she'll probably take my temperature and look at my throat. In frame three, he worries, well, maybe she'll take a blood sample. I hope she doesn't take a blood sample. Maybe she'll just weigh me. Frame four, Charlie agonizes, if she mentions exploratory surgery, I'll scream. All of us are like Charlie Brown, aren't we? We let our fears run away with us. We live in an anxious age. And let's be honest, the 24-hour news cycle does not help. You could put on bad news 24 hours a day, and then people will tell you why it's bad news and why the news that's coming after it is going to be even worse. One of my favorite songs in The Wiz, I don't know if you remember that from the, the 70s, it was a, was a Hollywood musical. It is the uh, soul version of The Wizard of Oz. And uh, Dorothy was played by Diana Ross, and the Scarecrow was played by um, Michael Jackson, and Nipsey Russell was, was in it, and I don't remember who the lion was. And uh, Mabel King was the Wicked Witch. She sat on this big, huge throne, if you know what I mean. And she had a big plunger, and she sang this wonderful song, Don't Nobody Bring Me No Bad News. And she ran a sweatshop, so all of her little flying monkeys 
were sewing machines and they would jump up. She would go, don't nobody bring me no bad news. And all the sweatshop workers would go, no bad news, no bad news. And she, it was wonderful. And isn't that where we all are? Don't nobody bring me no bad news. It's coming. The bad news comes all the time and we feel trapped. We feel like we're in a tunnel and we can't catch our breath. And there's no visible light in sight. So listen to the way David described his threats in this psalm. They were evildoers. Uh, in the King James it says, they come to eat my flesh. And he was, he was calling his enemies animals. He had adversaries in this psalm and foes. Armies, hosts surrounded him. He was in the midst of war, trouble, he says, forsaken by family, enemies, false witnesses and threats. David was overwhelmed. David was oppressed. David had obstacles that were, for human beings, too big to overcome. Life hasn't changed much in 3,000 years. But to be clear, this psalm is not David whistling in the graveyard. This psalm is David's claiming of the past as he looks to the future. Now, aren't you glad you all grew up in Sunday school? Because you know that David fought off a lion and a bear. He says, a lion came and grabbed one of my sheep and he killed the lion. David was used to overwhelming odds. If you were betting on a teenager with a slingshot and a big stick and a lion... None of us would pick the teenager. God picked the teenager. Later on in life, David is confronted by a tall fellow. Some people think he was about nine feet tall. His spear was as thick as a weaver's beam. Who are you betting on? The nine-foot giant man? Or the teenager with seven smooth stones and a big stick? God picked the teenager. Lions, bears, nine-foot giants. Think about this. David went to live in the big city of Jerusalem. He was a farm boy. He didn't have the manners. He didn't have the breeding. He had the same anxiety that my, my mother used to have going into Philadelphia in the 60s. During the riots, we'd be half, my grandparents lived in Philadelphia on Samson Street. We'd be driving over the Ben Franklin Bridge. My mom would shout, lock the doors. That was her defense for going into the big city. And it, it happened right about at the apex of the bridge. And she'd shout, lock the doors. And we'd all like, oh, we were little kids. We didn't know any better. Mom was afraid of the big city. Let's be honest. There's a lot of people in South Jersey who are afraid of the big city. It's just over there. Oh, I don't like going to Philadelphia. They think I'm crazy because I go all the time to sing. But David had that anxiety, I'm sure. And what does he say about God? God was his Lord. God was his light. God was his stronghold. God was his shelter. God was his tent. God was his, God was his high rock. And maybe most importantly, God was gracious. David saw God's leadership. David saw God's protection. David saw God's concealment. His provision, his advantage, and again, his grace. Now, then we have to say, how did David get to that spot, and how do we get there? Because many people in the world today are paralyzed by their fear. In fact, in, in psychology, they call it flight, fight or flight, and they've added a new one, freeze. 
And, and you've seen this. The deer is walking across the road and it sees your headlights and what's it do? Not helpful for the car or for the deer. So they've added that one. It's flight, fight, or freeze. And yet David does none of the above. David focuses on God. Now I want you to hear how David wrote this psalm because David was very aware that his listeners and he were using all of their senses to experience the psalm. The first thing is, is David uh, wants to dwell in the house of the Lord. Do you hear him say that during the psalm? I want to dwell. So there's a phys- physicality that is psalm. He wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. There's a visual component to the psalm. He wants to hear the voice of the Lord. And he wants to not be cast off, not be forsaken, or not be turned away. There's an emotional component to this psalm. Then there's a growing component. He says, teach me your ways. And the directional. He says, lead me on a level path. In other words, David is sort of repeating last week's sermon about being focused. Remember the binoculars? And, and the, by the way, they are gone. They were gone by Tuesday, right? The Reese's. Oh, okay. <laughs> David says, and this is where we're going, and thank you for those of you that are taking notes. David says that there's four things that he does to get away from the anxiety, away from the fear, and focused on his light and his salvation. The first one is wait. David's conclusion at the end of the psalm is he said he's going to wait on the Lord. And in Hebrew, that word wait means eager and patient anticipation. Now, you may or may not remember, and it's not a quiz, that Hebrew only has two verb tenses. Incompleted action, I'm going to the store, and completed action, I went to the store. And the implication is that when the verb is incompleted action is that it will be completed. Uh, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, right? And he finishes with, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I remember being a little boy thinking, I don't want them to follow me. I want them to catch me. And that's the way the Hebrew verb works. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me, the implication be, and catch me, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. David is going to wait on the Lord. Why? Because the Lord's timing is perfect. And the Lord is going to catch up to David. The second thing David says is he's going to be strong. Now, we can be strong in body. And I've heard many preachers say that we need to take good care of our physical body. And Paul says that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And David was a mighty warrior. David took good care of his body. The next thing we need to do is take care of our brain. And I, I want you to hear this. Philippians 4.8 talks about the things that we put into our brain. And I want you to think about what you read and what you watch on TV and what movies you go to see and the discussions you have with your coworkers. Are you putting wholly healthy things in your brain? Are you putting other things in your brain? What did David say? I seek your face. Teach me your ways. David wanted God's words in his brain. And then there's a fellowship that goes with this. 
We need to learn God's ways and seek his face. So we're waiting on the Lord. We're maintaining our personal strength, physical, spiritual, emotional, and otherwise. And then he says, courage. He's going to have courage. Well, what does courage mean? And I think it's wild that the, this, the, this morning in Sunday school, we talked about moving from comfort to courage. And then David talks about courage in the psalm. Well, courage for me says that you have a purpose. David's purpose was to honor God's word because he knew that one day he would be king. He had to have a plan. He was responsible not only for himself, but for his mighty men. And his plan was to follow the word and the will of God. He had to have perseverance. I don't know if you've ever been in the desert at night. It's hot during the day. What most people don't know is it gets freezing cold at night. And they were, they were having a, an extended camping trip with the youth group. They were out in the cold. And if you've ever been with teenagers on a camping trip, they are whiners. They don't like it if it's hot. They don't like it if it's cold. They don't like it if it's raining. They don't. If, if you give them the opportunity, they'll complain about everything. And David was not complaining. He's persevering because he knows God's possibilities. In 1 John 4, 4, it says, Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And then he finishes David's four points. He finishes with point number one, which was? Wait. Wait, be strong, be courageous. And if you didn't get rule number one, it's now rule number four as well. Wait. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. So what's our conclusion? Well, I'm sorry to say it's exactly the same conclusion as last week. We have to change our focus. We can worry about Ukraine and China and hackers and gasoline and death and abandonment and finances. Or we can look at the light at the end of the tunnel. As we journey towards Easter, because it is Lent, we have to ask ourselves three questions. Is your heart filled with the word of God? Is your sight focused on God's destination? And what are you going to do with your hands? David was a man of action. Sometimes the church is, is a group of people who celebrate inaction. I, I don't know about you, I played sports in high school. I was terrible. I was the slowest two-miler in the state of New Jersey for three years. Nobody ran the miles slower than me. But I knew I, I, I wanted to go to an Ivy League college, and I knew I had to have sports on my resume, and I was on the track team, and I was terrible. And I got to tell you that sometimes I did not want to be a bench warmer. I wanted to run. Even though I was terrible, I was there for the practices. I was there for the talks and the speeches and the inspiration, and I wanted to run. God is calling each one of us to run. So our front pew is open for you today. If you'd like to counsel or pray with one of our deacons or our pastors. If you want to know more about Jesus. If you want to know more about the Christian life. Or you just need to talk to someone about a personal issue or a challenge. We would love the opportunity to pray with you.
and to change your focus. Amen.